Okay, we're trying this. I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if you guys will love it. I don't know if you'll hate it. But I am recording driving to Jacksonville for the FWC meeting. So if you got background noise, um, that's either the car or me or uh, other cars, I guess. That would be bad, probably. Um, could be the AC because it's a thousand degrees in Florida right now. And I am driving a rental car. This is fun. Uh, my truck, after duck season, it was doing this funny surge thing. And so after duck season, I put it in a shop to get checked. And they're putting a new transmission in it under warranty. So that's a blessing and a curse. Like, obviously, way more of a blessing to go ahead and get that swapped out. But um, so don't have my truck right now. I have a loaner Nissan Murano from from the Nissan place in Winterhaven. And so far, I like it. It's it's fine. I mean, I don't love it. There's a reason I have a truck and not a little midsize SUV wagon thing. Huge miss on the last podcast I did in that I did not give a shout out to Fletcher Hallett. Hallett Insurance, double the L's, double the T's. Hallett for all your insurance needs, 904-315-5812. As recently as the last 10 days, Fletcher has written a new insurance policy for me and Emily personally. Um, if you've not called Fletcher, not shopped your policy with him, what are you waiting for? Like, I feel like we say the same thing kind of over and over, but it's like hard to, to I mean, we've got it, we've got it figured out. Like this guy, if you're in the state of Florida, this is the guy you want doing your insurance stuff. I uh, can't tell you how many people have reached out to us over the years and said, he's incredible. Like he saved us money or he told us he couldn't save us any money and just stay right where we were. He's very honest, very good guy. He's a hunter. He's a fisherman. He's a conservationist. He loves Florida um, with the fire of a thousand suns. So reach out to Fletcher, 904-315-5812. You can call, you can text, or you can email fhallett at hallettends.com. So... One of our listeners texted me this week and uh, said, hey, it would be cool if you, now that you got this mobile recording gear, to maybe do a podcast on the way to the commission meeting. So that is what I'm doing. I'm recording straight into my laptop, so no idea how long that battery will last. So we're going to go as long as we can go, um, and I'm going to fly through these and try to get this posted tomorrow morning before the first commission meeting on Tuesday. So... Um, Anyway, this will be a timely episode. It won't be one that sticks out long term. Although some of the topics we're going to talk about in it are probably pretty good, just general knowledge conservation topics in Florida. So I'm going to go through these. Um, I kind of made a list that I can kind of safely glance at. I'm going to go through these, um, you know, lightning round style because I have, I think, seven items on the list. And if I spent five minutes per, that's 35 minutes. And you guys don't want to listen to me talk for 35 minutes. So the first thing that's on the agenda on Tuesday morning is the hunting rules. Um, every year, FWC's Hunting and Game Management Division puts together this survey. I have kind of a love-hate with it, right? Like, nothing is ever perfect. So part of me is like, this survey is so complex. Like, it makes me fall asleep taking it because by regions and WMAs and like you can get really granular into the hunting regulations and they do this because we have so many WMAs in our state which is a good thing and some of those have property specific rules for various reasons and basically they lump it all into a rules package almost like an appropriations bill if you're a, if you're a legislative person and bring it to the commission together 
And so I think, and I, I don't have that in front of me, but I think I read there's 128 uh, changes that were suggested by stakeholders this year. And, or I'm sorry, 300 were suggested, 128 were accepted. So um, the, the only three that they called out, I read through the presentation and the summary memo. Um, the three that they called out, uh, they're establishing a couple of new uh, uh, WMAs. One is within the boundaries of Everglades National Wildlife Refuge. So I think, you have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, somebody, because I'm not a huge WMA guy in that part of the state, but I think there are multiple WMAs already inside the NWR, or maybe there are different units inside the, the NWR. I know Kissimmee Bend is one. I think Arbuckle is one. Um, so I think Headwaters will be another one within the Headwaters NWR, National Wildlife Refuge. So that's cool. You're talking about 1,900 acres, I think, was the number there. And then there was another um, another WMA coming online, about 3,300 acres, Garcon Point. Um, there were some vehicle restrictions being proposed for Babcock Webb, like like ORV, off-road vehicle, is the way I took it to, to I took the presentation to be speaking to. Um, again, if you got way into the state regulations, they're so massive. I think our agency does a really good job with them. Like I said, this is why I have a love-hate with it. So I'll be speaking in support generally of these regulations because I don't see anything that sticks out as a red flag. And we have to approve them every year so that we can hunt um, on our public lands. So it's important that we get it done. This got delayed a little bit because of the hurricane, I think. So it's in a meeting late. I don't think we usually do it in the February meeting. I think we usually do it in the December meeting, although I like February better. Um, so that was first. Uh, I'm going to skip the Skyway and come back to that so I can keep out there for a minute. Um, and I'm going to go to, there's a legislative review. So the federal legislative review, FWC has a lobbyist that works in DC. Um, so on that segment, I'm going to comment uh, probably until I did not review their presentation. In fact, I don't think there was one up when I looked last, but I'm going to speak in support of their legislative agenda. But I'm also going to mention this is a farm bill reauthorization year. And in the farm bill, there's always opportunities there for private landholders to uh, do good conservation work, which is the thing we've supported and, and talk about a lot on this show. But there's also a, a little weird program that NRCS, the, the Farm Bill folks, offer called the Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program, VPA HIP. And VPA HIP, uh, the state of Florida has never taken any money from this program. In the past, it has been capped, uh, I think, at $3 million and $50 million total for the nation over a five-year period. They are tripling the 50 million to 150 million in the proposed farm bill. And I think the cap would be 10 million per state. So it's an opportunity maybe for another revenue stream for some small to middle-sized landowners. Um, in my mind, you could think agritourism, you could think bird watching tours. I think there's a really good opportunity here for like dove, dove fields to play. Um, if you, if you had a heart, kind of an altruistic heart where you wanted to, make a little bit of revenue off your land, but also allow some pe different people behind the gate, which I think is an underrated variable 
in 2023 in Florida is the idea of allowing new people behind your gate because I think we will see as I get into the social science discussion here in a few minutes that um, we lose ground every day in the state. So that's the congressional update. I'll speak in support of Catch a Florida Memory. I would not drive to a commission meeting to speak on that, but because I'm there, I'll sign up to speak in support of it. I think that's a great program. We did a whole podcast on that uh, two summers ago. It's a great program where you go and register your catches and periodically you get prizes based off how many species you've caught over the course of your life. Uh, you can enroll your kids in it. Uh, really, really cool program. It's very similar kind of to the trophy bass program on the freshwater side. Obviously doesn't have as much money thrown at it, but hopefully that program will continue to grow and we can see it become something very similar to trophy bass. Uh, let's see, public items not on the agenda is always a hot topic. I will tell you this is Monday when I'm recording this driving to Jacksonville. I'm still waiting on some clarification on some legislative items. My public comment might go in that direction. Uh, I won't bore you with all those because I talked about them on our last podcast we did. But I will say, um, if, if I don't have clarification on those items, my comments will probably lean more into thanking the agency for all the work they did with stakeholders this past year regarding hydrilla. And I'll say it this way, you guys know me, I'm not, I really try not to be like a attention seeker on this stuff at all, but due to the advocacy and work that we've done and the relationships and the efforts that we've put in with the agency, uh, we calculate that we were able to get almost 20,000 acres of hydrilla left on lakes during duck season. That's significant for us. And I know hydrilla is an invasive weed. I know it's, an, it, it's noxious. I know that we generally dislike it but it's also a crucial component for waterfowl hunting in florida so the fact that the agency specifically habitat and species conservation was so willing to work with us on that huge deal huge deal and i think that needs to be recognized so um, if i don't have clarification on those legislative items i will be speaking in support of hsc's invasive plant management team and the work they did uh, in support of us and now they're doing some treatments on those lakes and i've i've kind of candidly told our audience do not complain about these treatments because they were they were purposefully postponed in support of us. So let's be in support of the agency now. Let's work together. Let's let's be collaborative on these things and in, 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 in these solutions. Um, man, I'm flying through these with the speed and aplomb of the incomparable Robin Williams. Snook Regional Management. Not a new rule being voted on here, but this is going to be the first look we have at snook regulations beginning to mirror the redfish regulations that were adapted last year, adopted last year. So um, forgive me, I, I had the allergy stuff last week. That's the reason I did not record last week. So <coughs> sorry to cough or, or clear my throat in your ears, but um, I, I had basically no voice and it was just it's allergy season if you live in florida everything's covered in green so snook regional management they're going to go to a similar kind of program that they did with redfish where they look at more than just uh, on redfish it was escapement was the previous metric on snook it's spr spawning potential ratio um and i'm gonna i'm not a scientist but i believe that's the the percentage of hatch year fish that will reach spawning size so the SPR to have a sustainable snook fishery is 20%. We set the target at 40 in the state. That has been set there since the 90s. 
and oh, I better go. And um, then we, uh, so, but we have closures, obviously, like in Southwest Florida right now, still due to red tide from, I don't know which red tide, 2018 or something. So what this program does is it, it adds in other variables. Uh, habitat is one. They look at habitat measures. They look at harmful algal blooms. They look at water quality. Uh, they look at stakeholder feedback, obviously. Um, they look still at SPR. They look at, I think it's indices of relative abundance, which is a metric. It was our first conversation we ever did with someone from FWRI. Um, and there's something else. Oh, on Snook, they look at temperature, water temperature, because this is so important. Like if you had a really, really cold winter and the water temp dipped below, forget the threshold, but it's something like 54 degrees, Snook go belly up. So if you had a a prolonged set of cold fronts that drove that water temp down, you could have a snook die off. You would not have that with redfish. So it makes complete sense to add that metric in on the snook side. Um, so I, I think this is a good thing. I think it's not going to get snook open soon in Southwest Florida because Southwest Florida is perpetually going to have algal blooms. Um, I don't think that's going away. In fact, right now, if you look at the red tide chart, Southwest Florida is just getting hammered again. So, um, I, I, I am supportive of this way of managing the fishery moving forward because it takes the executive order out of play. Uh, right now, snook fishing is closed in Southwest Florida due to an executive order. Uh, it was another extension because when the redfish rules were adopted last fall, uh, trout were reopened, redfish were reopened, we redacted the executive order that would have reopened snook so they issued a new executive order and i'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute so those are the one two three four five kind of superficial things i'm going to camp out for just a minute here on the skyway pelican issue skyway pelican rule i've been working on this uh, for a little bit now and the skyway I believe, this may not be true, but I'm pretty sure the first snook I ever caught without the supervision of an adult, so like I went on my own and caught a snook, was off the Skyway Fishing Pier. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, that was a place that me and my buddy Tony, uh, the human life jacket, could go when I was in high school. My parents would let us take the car and we could go over there. We didn't have a boat. We were able to saltwater fish, which was a thing you couldn't really do. Um, obviously, freshwater fish where I'm at, but... Saltwater fishing wasn't as mainstream or accepted uh, or available as it is now. And so being able to snook fish was a big deal for us. We'd also drive over to Fort DeSoto, but you weren't going to catch snook off the pier at Fort DeSoto. And we waited the flats over there and we'd occasionally catch trout and ladyfish. But really, if you wanted to catch cool fish, the Skyway was a good opportunity to do it. So it's a very sentimental issue to me. There's obviously an emotional connection there in my mind, but I'm also not indifferent to the idea that these pelicans are getting entangled and what's happening is pelicans are getting entangled in fishing lines there uh, the lines are breaking or the anglers are breaking them off or any number of things are happening but you're ending up with pelicans entangled in lines and then they end up drowning because they can't escape that's really sad it's not a good situation we want to work together to come up with a solution to solve this um, so that's that's kind of i think an even set of where the the situation is now 
we talk a lot about game species species on this podcast, on this program. Um, we talk a lot about ducks. We talk about compensatory mortality and additive mortality and things like that. Those numbers aren't known for pelicans, according to FWC. And I say according to FWC, like I'm citing them as the source. It's not that I'm skeptical of their information. I believe them. Because there's no data, there's no money really to study are the pelicans, what, are they in trouble, are they not in trouble? Although we do know at a population scale, pelicans were delisted in the 80s from the endangered species list, then they were downlisted in the early 2000s, then they were downlisted again in the 2010s, I think 2013. So generally, if you look at that trend, pelicans are doing better than they were historically. Uh, pelicans were really, really, they suffered huge through the DDT stuff back in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when DDT was a pesticide or herbicide that was used and it, it compromised pelican eggs or breeding and so huge problem. It was a huge problem for a lot of waterfowl and a lot of birds of prey. Pelicans seem to be on the rebound. They seem to be doing great, but obviously we're having a lot of entanglement issues at the Skyway Pier. And I don't think it's just the Skyway Pier. I think the Skyway is just the busiest pier in the state. I think it's the pier that the most people are fishing on. So what are we going to do? Well, it's kind of gotten... The way a lot of these rules work, a lot of these situations work, is the agency comes in, they're like, we're going to have to present a rule for what we can control. Like the agency, FWC, can't go tear down the old span at the Skyway that's just there that no one can access. They can't go tear that down because that's DOTs. And FWC doesn't actually run the Skyway Fishing Pier State Park. That's DEPs. So FWC is in a little bit of a weird place here. The chairman of FWC... Rodney Barreto sent an email out, this was mid-January, saying that we would come up with a solution. And that email was pretty strong. I don't have it in front of me. I'm not going to read it. You can go find it. Um, but it was pretty, I don't want to say strongly worded because it was a well-written email, but it was pretty, if you know Chairman Barreto, it was a announcement of we're going to get a resolution to this. So just stay tuned. <coughs> and I believe it pointed at this next commission meeting. So they had a um, consensus building workshop that we were privileged to be invited to. We went to this consensus building workshop and I would say from the consumptive user side, you had us, you had American Sport Fish Association, you had a representative from Skyway Misfits, you had uh, CCA Florida, you had, did I say ASA already? ASA was there, uh, Dylan Hubbard was there from Florida Guides Association and Hubbard's Marina. Um, big stakeholder on both sides of that conversation. Salt Strong has been at some of those meetings and Salt Strong's provided really valuable opportunities for education and using their platform for, for bettering uh, this whole conversation. But those were the, the, I'll say the consumptive stakeholders. And if you're new to this conversation, when I say consumptive, I mean people that buy a license. Theoretically, when you buy a license, you're paying for that license for an impact on whatever the resource is. In this case, the idea that you could take a fish. Then you had a number of groups from the humanitarian, animal lover, tree hugger, environmental, however you want to classify that side. You had Humane Society of the United States there. You had several Audubon groups. You had the Florida Ornithological Society. You had uh, Friends of the Pelicans. So those were kind of the two, I'll say, factions in the room. 
And FWC was very clear to all of us in the room that this needed to be a consensus building exercise. That a rule is going to get made. It's a matter of can we work together and reach consensus. And so the groups I named on the consumptive side, very quickly, and, and we've worked with FWC for a long time. We know the players. We know this, we know this world. We very quickly started looking for opportunities to build a rule that we could live with. Um, digging in our heels and saying no rule is acceptable doesn't seem like a good strategy if we're being told there's going to be some kind of rule. I'm going to just candidly say it. I was really disappointed in the environmental groups because none of them would come to a consensus or collaborate with the fisheries groups. Every time we would relent or make a compromise, they would say, that's a good start. And it's like there's this golden mean fallacy out there that if you say the sky is yellow and I say the sky is blue, that we settle out that it's green. We've talked about that on the podcast before. We know that's not true. So it's like that's how we're going to build this rule. No, that's not that's not OK. So we had some data that has been presented in some of these meetings that come to find out is not very good data. Um, we use that data. We didn't know at the time that wasn't very good data. But we use that data to kind of say, hey, we would accept some of these restrictions seasonally based around the peak entanglements based off the data that you guys are presenting us. And so what that was was the original rule that was kind of, they called it a, uh, what did they call it? A straw man rule that was presented for discussion was no use of treble hooks, no multi-hook rigs, so no sabikis, um, year-round, no more than a possession of three rods. I think those were the major rules. Um, we were like, you know, that really kind of, I used to mackerel fish off the Skyway for, for Spanish mackerel, and you threw a spoon with a treble hook on it. Like, that was the preferred bait that we threw. And to limit that becomes, I think... It, it, it puts an undue burden on a fisherman that it might, I don't know how to say this well, but it's its a fisherman that can't afford a boat generally. This is a fisherman that is, the, the Skyway is very accessible for uh, uh, lower income, subsistence fishermen, uh, anyone with a disability. There's, it's, it's an old road, so you're able to, like, you could use a wheelchair to move around very easily out there. So I am very sensitive to that stuff. And I am very cognizant of that stuff. Making it um, too punitive on the fishermen becomes... Because I think what's not discussed in this conversation is there's more pelicans than ever. And there's more pelican-fisherman interactions than ever. And there's good bait. And there's lots of fishermen. Even if you put the rule in, isn't it theoretical that that number should continue to go up? Simply based on the fact that if there's always going to be more pelicans... Like, I, I just think we're we're struggling a little bit here because we don't exactly know what we're trying to accomplish. And I think what we're trying to accomplish is to lower the total number of entanglements. The right way to do that, looking at the data that we were presented with at the time was, put these restrictions in place in December, January, December, January, and February. Then when the mackerel run begins in March, you could allow people to use treble hooks again. In conjunction with that, we also propose the idea of using a creating a peer fishing license, free, um, but required. So, some people are like, "Oh, you want more regulation? What the heck?" 
dude, we live with this all the time. We live with this in the hunting world because we do hunter safety classes. We have the shore-based shark fishing license. You have to have your migratory bird permit, which is free to hunt ducks or doves or snipe in, in, in the United States. Like, this is not a new invention to create a license for the sake of either collecting data or pushing data out. So the, the genesis of this would be to create some sort of a course similar to the shore-based shark fishing. We have to take a little free course that you walk through that teaches you how to handle pelican entanglements. Um, plenty of that information out there, but we don't know if it's getting out to the people that are actually on the pier fishing. So let's require it. Let's create QR codes and put some stickers up on the pier so that people can take it right there if they need to from their phone. Like, let's make this, let's get the information in the people's hands as easily as possible. But let's also tactically reduce the number of entanglements in these months if we think that these rules are going to work. Uh, in conjunction with all of that, we need to also look at uh, collecting data on entanglements in these months to see if these rules do in fact work. Do we see a decrease when these rules are in place? So that was kind of the where we landed. Um, I signed on, all Florida signed on, along with ASA, Salt Strong, uh, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, a number of groups, Florida Guides Association, to a sign-on letter kind of reflecting as such. Um, we initially drafted a sign-on letter trying to get Audubon or HSUS or any of those other groups to join us in it. None of them would entertain it at all. They all said, oh no, we like the direction this is going in, but we want more. So it's kind of like the buying a car thing. Like the first person to throw a number out there kind of gets screwed. I don't think that's really what the agency wants. That's not how they want this to work, but that's how it's going to work if this is the way the rulemaking process is gonna go. And I think that's a cautionary tale um, for what we're about to talk about, and that's the subject of social science. So I'll be making comments on the Pelican Rule. I'll kind of be outlining exactly my concerns with not so much the rule specifically itself, but the idea of if we go to consensus building workshops, the best solution for a consumptive use group is to dig in at the far other end. Because the the animal rights groups were digging in at we want a closure outright of the fishing pier but let me say that again the pier that's open for fishing they want to restrict fishing on to protect the birds um, and there is one peer-reviewed set of data on this it's by a young lady named Farrell Thomas from Eckerd College you can go find that paper the conclusions on this, yes, there, there is the opportunity for fishing restrictions in the conclusions, but before that in her conclusions, she talks about hazing and what was the other term she used? Like, like I can't think of it off the top of my head, but discouraging or, or uh, there, there's hazing the birds away, but there's also discouraging them from using the place in the first place. So in a hazing situation, to me, like you haze, you could theoretically haze pelicans off of an airport. Like, I know they do it with geese and stuff out in the West. Um, that would be like using air cannons or fans or ropes is a, is a thing that ASA suggested a number of times. Like, what if we hung like the big heavy ropes vertically off the span so the birds can't fly between them, but you could still drop your line of fish? Um, it, would, it would impede their navigation. That'd be a hazing technique. Um, but then you could also knock down the span next to it. That would be a technique that would discourage them from roosting there because this is not a rookery it's not a nesting place but this is a maybe i'm using that term wrong 
but this is a place where the pelicans will roost to feed. So, um, anyway, it's a fascinating discussion. I really think, and I really hope the commission here understands the live ammunition they're playing with, though, with the power they're handling the environmental groups, depending on how this rule shakes out. Because I, I don't think that conversation is going away in the broader social science political atmosphere of the state of Florida. And here we are to my last one. So this will be in the afternoon of day one. This may get bumped. But this, this agenda item is reason enough for me to drive across the state to speak on it. The potential that this is an agenda item is reason enough for me to drive across the state to speak on it. Because I believe the misapplication of social science is the most dangerous thing that we can talk about with regards to wildlife management. Um, I, oh, there's an ambulance behind me navigating traffic. So you may get sirens. This may be a first. It may sound like a law and order show. Social science, social science is kind of the, I won't say the opposite, but it's the peer of biological science or ecological science. Social science includes things like political science. Um, it includes things like psychology. It includes things like, uh, give me another social science, Travis. Sorry, trying to get out of the way of an ambulance. This is a first. This is a, this is a podcast first. I'm sitting in like four lanes of traffic. This is not, what I'm doing is not unsafe at all. I wonder if I can mute you guys. For the record, uh, I'm moving about 0.6 miles an hour. Um, economics is a social science. There was another one. So there's all these, we, we refer to it a lot of times as the, the human dimensions of science. And how you navigate that for a wildlife agency has a lot of red flags to Travis. A lot of red flags to Travis. And I, this is my opinion. But this is my opinion as a guy who's been working on this stuff for a, a, more than a few minutes. Misapplication of social science can be the most dangerous thing for FWC. And I think social science is a red flag because social science is the tool that is used to determine. We don't have a bear hunt in Florida because of social science. Travis, what do you mean by that? Well, we know that hunting is accepted in the management plan for bears. We know that the agency is, quote-unquote, supportive of funding. We know that um, you could use hunting as a management tool effectively and efficiently. We see that we have all kind of data and science on that from across the country. But we're not going to turn it on. Why aren't we going to turn it on? Because politically it would be a bad decision for Governor DeSantis. Social science is driving wildlife policy there, and that's dicey. You know the reason we can't hunt sandhill cranes in Florida? Oh, because we have some special subspecies. B.S., y'all. We could run some kind of sandhill crane hunt in Florida without issue if we were a pro-hunting state that believed in hunting as a wildlife management tool. 
Well, but we wouldn't know how many would kill. Okay, then here's the proposal. Turn on a pilot program where we take 500 cranes a year out of these crane management units and we send them off to Phil Lavretsky and we build that into the license cost and we determine how many Florida strain and how many are migratory and then we build our season out around that. Next problem to solve. Like, don't come at me with it's too hard for us to solve. It's not. Social science is making it too hard for you to solve because you want to keep everybody happy. The Pelican conversation. The Pelican conversation is driven by social science. The snook closure that we had last year, a group of stakeholders that were fundraising met with the executive director and asked to extend the closure on snook. And because that group had connections to the governor, we left snook closed. The misapplication of social science is the most dangerous thing to wildlife management in the state. I'm gonna go even further. Does, does DOT or D, is DEP gonna create a social sciences division to start interviewing hunters on developments? Is DEP gonna create a social sciences division to start interview, interviewing general average public people in the state of Florida about development approvals? No, they're going to use the metrics that are within DEP's framework, which are complete BS and a failure by our state. They're going to use those to continue to approve developments, which is, by the way, why I've moved a mile since you heard that ambulance, um, because traffic's just out of control. Why the wildlife agency feels such an onus to start bringing the human dimension conversation to the forefront on par with ecological or biological science is a rushed and in my opinion flawed decision. I'm not against social science. I think social science could be a very valuable tool and I think it could have great application because I think if you looked at the economic drivers you could figure out ways to take social science to apply it to opening a season on sandhill cranes. But I think the inverse is also true. You could say well, the economic loss from bird hunting sandhill cranes could drive us down. But the other kind of body of work here that I struggle with a little bit is social science as a new, and I'm doing air quotes as I'm driving because I'm not moving, social, social science as a new quote-unquote science. The scientific method is kind of how we build out science over time. And... If you look at some of the social science examples that are in the presentation that FWC is going to be using, they're on small ticket items, right? They're on black crappie reg reg regulations. They're on uh, extending, ex uh, increasing the alligator harvest numbers. And if you look at that, they asked um, alligator hunters, but they also asked waterfront homeowners. And I'm like, what made you pick that subset of people to discuss this with? Why are they viewed as a stakeholder in this conversation? Well, because they live on the water. So, but they don't buy a license. And this is a conversation I've had a lot of. And I'm thoroughly convinced I might be an old man yelling at a windmill right now. But I think if you were to ask around, and I've got a phone call coming up here in a little while with another state, a state that is run by a political party completely different from that in control of Florida, that would tell you that their biggest issue with wildlife management is social science. I think this is going to be a major, 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 major issue in the years to come. And again, I'm not into anti the tool. 
but I am anti big time the misapplication of the tool. And you can say, well, Travis, we can misapply science all the time too. That's true, but we've got a longer body of work on most science. We've also got accepted measures on how that science is conducted. Um, this, this, man, this is a, we are opening Pandora's box with this conversation. And th this, this, this commission was fascinated by the term, for years they brought it up, maybe a year, uh, shifting baseline syndrome. And the idea that uh, over time, you begin to accept nor the new norm. Like we, we see this a lot in water quality, right? You just begin to accept that we have bad water quality and so that's kind of the new norm. It's where we are on snook regulations in Southwest Florida. We've had shifting baseline syndrome. So, but this commission, they just, they would throw it out periodically. Commissioner Nicholson, uh, Commissioner Barreto, they would just throw out SBS periodically. And it's just interesting to me that in this world that we live in, where they can wrap their heads around shifting baseline syndrome, social science is the tool that's going to assist in shifting the baseline syndrome versus being able to anchor it in a point so that we can look back and say, so, social science is the thing that can be used to eliminate honey. And, and that's in my heart, that's the biggest kind of red flag with it. Social science is the thing that can eliminate fishing. We're putting fishing restrictions on a pier that exists for fishing because of pelican entanglements, because pelicans have begun coming there in mass as pelican populations have rebounded. And we're going to use social science to put restrictions on fishermen. Don't tell me it's not a real concern. It's absolutely a real concern. How big of a concern it is, I think you could argue with me all day long, but it should be a real concern. And I can tell you that in conversations I have around the country with other policy people at other NGOs, social science is a real concern, but we don't seem to want to talk about it in the hunting and fishing world or in the consumptive world. And I think that we're on a slippery slope towards a preservation mentality when we start to look at that stuff because way more people are accepting of that. Way more people are accepting of the idea of preservation than they are using a resource. Sandhill cranes, alligators, black bears. We can, we can go down the list. I can find you hunters that are more accepting of protecting bears than they are of hunting bears. Like I could actually divide the hunter population somewhere on that line. So I just think this is a thing that more people need to be paying attention to. I'm not going in guns blazing, but I am going in eyes wide open and I'm not sure that I'll be well received because I've had this conversation with agency staff and they know where I stand on it. Um, I definitely think this is the most concerning kind of item on the agenda. And it's the thing that I think is going to need to be discussed the most in the near future. And I think, I think we're almost soft selling a little bit in this presentation. And I've talked to Dr. Crandall, who's going to be doing the presentation. I think she's incredible. I think she's remarkably sharp. I think she wants to do a good job. I think she's um, very, very, very qualified and passionate about wildlife resources and the management of them using social science. Um, and, and maybe this is just a guardrails conversation that needs to happen. But uh, intrigued about that, that is everything. That's, that's what's on the agenda. I could belabor social science for hours, but now I'm starting to move again. So probably need to get off here and pay more attention to my drive. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Um, I'm sure on social media, we'll keep you all updated with how things are going at the commission meeting. Uh, tonight, the night I'm driving up, I'm hoping to meet some folks at a local brewery, and we're going to have a hangout and 
eat some food and I'm not going to have a drink because I don't drink, but they'll probably have a few adult beverages. And then always looking forward to the commission meeting because you get to see a lot of friendly faces and familiar faces from around the state. So thank you guys for listening. I have no idea how long this is. Not been paying attention. I've been safely driving, Emily. And y'all have a great week and stay woke.